0: This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.
1: Three quick announcements. Um, This Friday night at 8 p.m., There's going to be a women's game night run by Lahela and Asena at Asena Kirkinen's house. If you have questions, women, uh, about this night, uh, see Lahela. She's right there in the back waving her hand. Uh, She can answer all those questions for you. But that's going to be this Friday night at the Kirkenen house. Second, uh, this is a really important one. On Monday, January 20th, so in a few weeks uh, from now, we're going to have an all-church gathering here at this space. Um, this is going to be an opportunity for us as leadership to sort of talk about 2020 and Cast Vision going forward. And also, um, given that we've been talking over the last month and a half, that or actually two months now, that this church is going up for sale, we believe that we are beginning to see potential movement forward for us in space that God might be opening up. And that's going to be the opportunity for us to share um, kind of what we're praying through, what we're looking at, and invite the community into that conversation. So that's going to be on January 20th. Please mark your calendars, 5.30, there will be food, and then the meeting will start right away at six o'clock right here, um, and that's a Monday night. Lastly, and I'm really, I'm super excited to introduce uh, to our community a new leader that we have. Um, Before I do so, though, I wanna preface um, the role that she's going to be playing in this, in this community. Uh, about two years ago, um, myself and other leaders in this community began to pray about how we as a community could live into a conviction that we've had from the very beginning of this church. And, and that is our responsibility to take care of the land and to be good land stewards. Um, so at the beginning of last year, Um, I went over to Tom and Desiree Ritz's house and they've been our deacons of garden life to sit through and to pray through like, okay, what are some unique opportunities that we could have to call our community into caring for the land that we occupy here and sharing that with one another. In that conversation, we talked about starting a CSA, which is typically community supported agriculture. But what we wanted to, to develop was a community shared agriculture project where Theophilus provides seeds and starts to our community to go and to plant in your backyard, to care for, to cultivate, and then to bring back and to share among us um, as a body. This summer, we saw the very beginning of what that could be, a very small portion. Um, But in the beginning stages of that, we began to realize that this, if this is something that is going to be to take root, and I think it is, I actually I know it is, um, and to have a profound impact, not just on our community, but on the community of Portland at large, it's going to take some significant organization and significant leadership to get that uh, moving forward. So I began to share excitedly with other people about this idea and passion that we have had, um, And in the fall, I received a, somebody called me to coffee, it's a family closely connected to the church, Um, and they had caught wind of what we were wanting to do, and were incredibly enthused by the idea, and gave us a gift, uh, a financial gift, to get this thing going and running uh, in our community. And so um, we began to pray as council, as staff, about, okay, how can we put these This gift to use to make sure that this is, um, this thing gets running and going. And collectively, all of leadership was like, Kelsey Rarig is our girl. This girl needs to get us moving. I want to introduce to you Kelsey Rarig. Kelsey, come up here. Kelsey has been a part of our community for a long time now. I don't know how long. How long? Five years. And she has a degree in health. She is just all into this kind of stuff. And about two years ago, was like, I am going to commit. I'm being called into agriculture. And she spent all of last year in Eastern Oregon uh, learning to organic do organic farming uh a farm, a small farm back there. Um, and she has come back to Portland. The timing is is. Perfect. Um, And she is going to give leadership to our community in helping us turn our small little CSA effort into something that is vibrant and flourishing. Uh, I've been meeting with Kelsey over the last couple weeks, and I could not be more excited for what she brings to the table uh, and and the potential ahead for us as a community. So she's a rock star. Actually, no, I'm sick. I'm not going to touch you. But um, I want to introduce you to. To Kelsey Brerig, she is going to be our director of Garden Life over this next next season, and we are working intently about um, putting together a structure to make sure that this thing has life and can flourish and bless a lot of people in this community. So before I send her back to the seat, I want to invite elders to come forward so that we can pray over Kelsey and over this uh, position, lay hands on her. I'm going to stand back here um, and then... And then Andy will come up and pray. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you so much for wacky ideas, crazy ideas that um, I believe that you plant in us to to live out the gospel in ways that um, bring healing to all things that you created, the land included. I thank you for Kelsey and her passion to steward the land and to be an advocate for health and wholeness um, in our community and in Portland. God, I pray that you have appointed her for such a time as this, and we just want to empower and release her in Jesus' name. May your spirit fill her as she has ideas and vision for this ministry This next year, may she feel empowered and enriched, and may you just walk before her. Um, God, we hand this to you. We don't want to surrender to our own creativity, but we do believe that uh, you give us gifts and skill sets to be used to your kingdom, and Kelsey has those gifts for this. Thank you for her. Thank you for her faithfulness. May you just empower her. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Give Kelsey a, a hug when you see her later tonight.
0: Well, Cameron shared what he did over his break, or at least the last little part of his break, sitting in the ocean and surfing, trying to surf. If you look at Cameron, you look and you're like, it oh, seems about right. He looks like a guy that likes to sit in the ocean and surf. If you look at me, I do not look like the kind of guy who sits in the ocean and surfs, it's because I am not. So over my break, I did things like eating pie and cookies. My uh, middle brother, Uh, Well, let's see, my middle brother's wife, my sister-in-law, texted a group text to uh, the brothers and spouses and said, well, since Michael doesn't like to brag on himself, I guess I'll do it for him. So we kind of like April and I were sitting together on the couch, probably having pie and getting these text messages. And we're like, oh, what is this? So my middle brother has been a police officer for a past decade and a half or so in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, if you've ever seen uh, or even heard of the show, The Wire, that was his job for about 10 of those years. He was an undercover narcotics detective. And earlier this year, uh, well last year, 2019, in March of 2019, uh, he took the sergeant's exam and got promoted to sergeant. And so he's been a sergeant now in, uh, for DeKalb County uh, in Georgia. And so, We got this text message and we're like wondering like, well, what's going on with like Michael? And it said, well, he was selected as the sergeant of the year for his precinct. We're like, wow, that's really cool. And he was also awarded sergeant of the year for DeKalb County. Wow, that's also really cool. And he was just appointed as uh, the new sergeant over all of internal affairs for the police department. And we're like, holy crap. Like this is like, he's been a sergeant for like nine months. Like this is like a ton of accolades and stuff. And to which I responded, that's great, man. I'm super proud of you. I ate a brownie today. (laughs) And that's really all I've done like over the past four weeks or so. So it's no surprise, should be no surprise to you that one of my favorite movies is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The 1971 version with Gene Wilder as kind of the quirky, little bit creepy Willy Wonka, but not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Johnny Depp, which is super creepy and really hard to connect to. I, I think I really love the Willy Wonka story because I like imagining myself in it. Like it has all of the elements of stories that I like. You've got this eccentric candy mogul who like nobody knows anything about. He makes great candy. There's all of these like legends and tales about what you would find if you go inside of his factory and he says he's gonna invite some people in. And so you go into the factory, I'm imagining I'm Charlie Bucket now, right? Um, You go into the factory and it's just as wonderful as you thought that it might be it's even better, like you lick the wallpaper and the raspberries taste like raspberries and the snozberries taste like snozberries. It's wonderful, the fizzy lifting drink, all of the like stuff. And then you get to the end and after like a little bit of like, uh, like tense conversation, the, the thing is, is like it wasn't just a factory tour, he wants to give it to you. Like this is yours now. Like that like was, that really got me going as a kid. I loved that idea. I like that it's like this thing that comes out of the blue and it's beautiful and wonderful and exciting and it's based on on generosity, not on merit, like Charlie Bucket was chosen and he was chosen for this wonderful adventure and this really cool inheritance. And our scripture that we're looking at today excites me in some of the same ways because it talks about something happening absolutely out of the blue. Something that's fun and exciting. It's based not on merit, but on generosity. This wonderful, exciting inheritance that's offered to us. Last week, uh, Jackie was up here and she was preaching about identity. She was preaching about the identity that God has and how we need to recognize, remember, and be reminded of who God is. And she had us meditate on a few verses from Isaiah and as we did that, we, we shared with one another out loud what are the attributes of God that we need to be reminded of, especially when times aren't going well. This week, the lectionary has us exploring passages also related to identity, but more about our identity. Who are we in relation to who God is? And so the one big idea, the thing that we're going to spend the rest of our time exploring today... Is this idea that in Christ, God has adopted us to be his heirs? In Christ, God has adopted us to be his heirs. So we're gonna look at what this means to be adopted by God and what it means to be God's heirs. We heard a scripture read just a few moments ago, but I want to walk us through it again, the scripture from First Ephesians, or from Ephesians chapter one. In Greek, I just find this interesting. This has nothing really to do with the rest of the sermon. But in Greek, this is one really long sentence. And Paul does this a lot. He was a bad writer. Like he doesn't know when to like end a sentence. So you've got like nine verses. We broke it up into nine verses and like individual sentences. But it's this one big long run on thing uh, that Karen read for us before. But basically the framework of it is this. God chose us. God chose us before all of creation to be holy and blameless. God has this big kind of general plan for all of humankind. He uses the word predestined. He predestined us to be what? To be adopted as his sons. We're going to come back to that in a moment. That's a loaded phrase. But he predestined us to be adopted as his sons because it brings God pleasure, it's out of God's goodwill. It brings God praise. And in fact, we kind of get to reflect some of that praise that God has, that God brings. We've been redeemed in Christ. This word redemption means bought back. We sung about that a little bit tonight, about how Christ paid our ransom. We were bought back from slavery to sin and death. In fact, when Paul uses that word redeemed, he has this concept of slavery in mind about people being bought out of slavery so they're no longer slave they're now free but then paul goes even further not only is this about the forgiveness of our sins it's about the lavishness of god's goodness and god's grace because not only are we bought out of slavery and redeemed we're also made heirs it doesn't happen to everybody that gets released from slavery you don't just become the heir of whoever bought you out of slavery But God's plan, God's purpose to bring God glory was to make us his heirs. And then we're sealed. There's a symbol, the the Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal, as a symbol, a sign, a deposit, Paul says, on our inheritance. That what is yet to come, we get to taste a little bit of that right now through the Spirit. So that's what the passage says. What does all of that mean? I think first we have to understand what Paul means by adoption here. Because I I think we have ideas of what adoption means. A couple weeks ago, uh, Cameron used the illustration of an adoption that he got to witness where a child whose parent could not care for this child in the way that the child deserved to be cared for was adopted by a family who could care for that child really well. Some of us in the congregation here have adopted children. So we have some idea of what adoption means, but is that what Paul means? Is that what's going on here in this passage? Are we being adopted in that same way? Paul uses this adoption language not just here in Ephesians, but he uses it two times in Romans, he uses it over in Galatians. He really likes this idea of us being adopted by God. So it's important, I think, that we understand what Paul meant and we get on the same page as Paul. It's interesting because in uh, the Greek culture, which would have influenced Paul a lot, and in the Jewish culture, which of course influenced Paul, he was like mega Jew, like Paul had no concept in Greek or Jewish culture of a legal kind of adoption. It didn't happen in Greco-Roman times, or in uh, Greek times, there really wasn't like a Hellenistic version of adoption. And in Judaism, while there is talk about caring for widows and orphans, there really isn't like a process for adopting those people to be your children or to be into your family. In fact, there was another way of providing for widows and orphans, and that was that the nearest male blood relative became the head of the household. So there wasn't really this sort of like, I see somebody that needs adopting and I'm going to adopt them into my family. It was a responsibility that was already clearly defined whose responsibility it was. And so the nearest male relative was to take on that responsibility. And so it was really more a prescription there. It wasn't so much thought of as adoption like we might think of it. So Paul is not talking about that. And he's not talking about something from like the Hellenistic culture. But if we look at the laws of Rome, we do find adoption laws there. And a lot of Paul's ministry, if you'll remember, were to people that were in the Roman Empire that didn't have the same Jewish background that he had. So he's pulling something that they would have understood, this idea of adoption. In Roman adoption law, there is a provision for a man selecting someone outside of his family to legally make part of his family so that then the law sees that person as connected to this familial line. In Roman adoption law, this actually isn't about the person getting adopted at all. This is all about the adopter. You see, the adopter is trying to control his wealth and be able to choose who he passes it on to. So if you have a Roman citizen that has great wealth or any wealth at all, really, and doesn't have an heir, he can then adopt someone to legally become his heir and control where that wealth goes. A lot of the adoptions that we see uh, written about from this time period in Roman law are actually uh, much older men adopting young men in their 20s or so to be their sons. So it's really not close yet to this concept of adopting a child that needs a home. This is all about the adopter controlling wealth, controlling inheritance, and being deliberate about that. The adopted son is given the legal status of a blood heir, And part of what that means is that any debts, any crime, any baggage that that adopted son had before, that gets legally wiped away. And now it's just like a fresh start for the adopted son. And that adopted son is supposed to recognize the authority of the father that adopted him as if that were his blood father. All of the rights and the privileges of this new parentage are enacted when this Roman citizen adopts another Roman. So maybe you can already see how this is different than our modern concept of adoption. Because it wasn't really about providing for a child that didn't have good parentage or whose parents weren't able to provide for him or her. Roman adoption really wasn't about a couple who couldn't have children being able to adopt and create a family. Roman adoption was about controlling inheritance and being deliberate with that. So let's keep that in mind as we continue to explore what Paul is writing about, about us being adopted as the heirs of God. I think Paul is saying that this adoption similarly is all about God. That it's not really about us. That God gets to choose who God's heirs are. And God's choosing us. God's choosing us to inherit all of God's kingdom, all of creation. He's choosing us for that. And there's nothing that we do to warrant that. There's nothing that we can coerce God into to make ourselves worthy of that adoption. It's God's initiative, it's God's idea. We get a little bit of a preview of this in one of the other lectionary passages uh, that's assigned for today out of Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is writing to uh, the people of Israel that are in exile in Babylon. And he's writing about the day that God is going to rescue them. And he uses this imagery of God being the father of Israel. A lot of times the, the people of Israel thought of themselves as children of God. But this idea of God being their father, we actually find just a very few times in the Old Testament, and this is one of them, where he says, God says, and I will be your father and I will lead them back to the promised land. And among them will be the the blind, the lame, and women who are in labor. He's calling out specific people who usually you would leave behind when you're moving from one place to another. And he's saying, no, they're going to be leading the way. In fact, they'll be rejoicing at the kingdom that they're being brought into. But again, the imagery in Jeremiah 31 is that this is God. This is God's initiative. God is leading them. This is God's choice, God's plan. He wants to adopt us because it brings him pleasure. This is about God being praised. This is about God's grace. There's nothing that we have had to do to warrant any of this adoption. It wasn't out of pity. It wasn't out of merit. It wasn't even our idea. God has an inheritance that God wants to give away and has chosen us to be the recipients of that inheritance. We see this in the whole biblical narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God created the earth for us to live on and pulled us out of it. We're to be stewards of this wonderful planet, this kingdom of God. We're talking about that as we talk about our community-supported agriculture. Like the reason that we have someone in a position that we've invited Kelsey to occupy this position is because we look at what God has gifted us with and we say even the land itself is a gift from God created by God for us to steward well. So how do we do that? So in what way are we made, children, children? Of God. In John chapter 1, John in sort of his prologue to his gospel, he writes that all who believe in the word, that is Jesus Christ, become children of God. And he goes on to write that they're heirs to the kingdom, but not natural heirs. They didn't come through a paternal line. They're heirs because God chose them and selected them to be heirs and that they are God's children in that way. Paul is even more specific. You notice he says that we are predestined to be adopted as sons. You see, sons, legally in the Roman Empire, they were the ones that had the right to inheritance. And Paul's being very uh, uh, intentional here when he says that we are called to be, or that we are adopted as sons of God. He's not making a gender claim here. He doesn't say we all transform into sons somehow, biologically. But he's saying that when we look at God's inheritance, our status is as status as the sons of God. In fact, in Galatians 4, when he talks about us being adopted as sons, on the very next verse, he says, but in Christ there is no more male and female. So he's not making a claim about biology here so much as he is about our status when it comes to inheritance. We are to be the inheritors of all of God's kingdom, the heirs. So what does it mean to be an heir? of God's kingdom, an heir of creation. Well, interestingly, in Roman law, the heirs are active participants in the estate. They're not passive. I think it's really different from how I think of inheritance. Like if I was thinking about like I have an inheritance coming to me, then you're kind of like waiting, right? Like it's out there for the future and I'm waiting for someone to die so that then I get this inheritance. But that's not the kind of inheritance that Paul was talking about. In Roman law, when you were made an heir, you took active participation in the management of that wealth and of that estate. And if you, there were multiple heirs, then those people would collaborate together with one another. So as heirs, we're called to something active, not something passive. This reminds me of uh, the parable of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15. Near the end, uh, you might remember the older brother is waiting outside. He's frustrated, doesn't want to go into this party for his younger brother that's come back. He says, all this time I've stayed with you, dad. You've never even given me so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. You remember what the father's response is? He says, everything I have is yours. Everything, it's all yours already. He was living with his father, he was managing the estate, all of the wealth he had access to, to use it right now. He said, So why don't you just come in and rejoice with us? Because everything I have is yours. See, we have our inheritance now as well, but we live in this this tension between having that inheritance but not having full access to it already. And I think that we can get tempted to just say, well, we'll just wait. We'll just wait until sometime in the future. I think this is where the sons, both of the sons in that prodigal story get it wrong because they thought that they had to wait until their father died in order to use that inheritance. So you remember the youngest one demanded it. He got impatient. You're not going to die? Just give me the money then. And he went off and he spent it and then the older brother didn't understand that just by living with his father by being in relationship with him he had access to that inheritance already in the same way our death or in the same way death doesn't begin our inheritance either we can't really wait for god to die that happened the one time with jesus and then he didn't stay dead so we're not waiting for god to die for our inheritance to come nor do we need to wait for our death which I think is one of the fatal mistakes that we end up making. Is that we think, like, okay, maybe we are inheritors. Maybe we are the heirs to God's kingdom. And so our inheritance is heaven. One day we'll die, we'll go to heaven, and that's when the real party will begin. I think the real party starts now. I want to tell you a story of two boys. Do you remember that book by Shel Silverstein called The Giving Tree? I loved that book growing up. The Giving Tree, if you uh, don't remember it or if it's kind of fuzzy, um, The Giving Tree is about this boy's relationship to a tree. And when the boy is young, he comes to the tree and he gathers leaves and he makes crowns for himself. He plays in the branches and swings from them. He naps in the shade. He gathers the apples and eats them. He just enjoys being around the tree. And it says the tree was happy. And then the boy gets a little bit older, and the boy comes to the tree less often. And he comes to the tree, and the tree's like, let's play together. Here, have an apple. And the boy's like, I don't know. I'm a little bit old now for swinging in trees and taking naps. In fact, what I really could use is some money. And the tree says, well, I have money but you can sell my apples. So the boy says, okay. So the boy takes the apples now not to eat them and have great pleasure from them, but actually to go sell them to buy, to get money so he can buy the things that he wants. More time goes by, the boy grows into a man and he comes by less often than he did before. Now he comes to the tree and is almost curt with the tree. The tree's like, hey, welcome back. You need more apples? And the man says, no. What I need is I need a house for my family and my children. And the tree says, well, I don't have a house, but you can have my branches. And so he cuts off the branches of the tree to go make a house. Then the man gets older, comes back to the tree again. The tree has no branches, no apples to give him. And the man says, I'm done with all of that silliness. I just want a boat so I can get out of here. I want to go far, far away. So he says, well, you can take my trunk for a boat. So he cuts down the trunk of the tree, makes a boat, sails away. And we see the boy one last time when he's an old man. And he comes and there's nothing left but a stump to the tree. And the tree sadly says, I have nothing left to give you. And the boy, the old man at this point, he says, doesn't matter. I'm tired. I just want a place to sit down. So he sits down on the stump. And that's the end of the story. I used to think, like, what a great tree. Like, it's such a wonderful tree. I read the thing now, and I'm like, that boy's a jerk. (laughs) Is that the kind of person that I am? Am I the boy in the giving tree? The other story of a boy comes from the Gospels. In all four Gospels, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6, there's this story of Jesus preaching to a large crowd of people in Galilee. And it's starting to get late. They're kind of far from any town. People are starting to get hungry. And the disciples say, Jesus, like maybe you should put a pause on the revival for right now and let people go find some food. We can pick this up tomorrow. And Jesus says, no. Why don't you guys feed them? And the disciples, they balk at first. They said, You know how much money that would cost? And, like, where are we going to get that money? We don't have that money, and the town is far away. You should just let the people go. In John's telling of the story, John actually has this detail that the other three gospel writers don't. They said, Among them was a little boy. And the little boy had five loaves and two fish five small barley loaves and two small fish. The other stories say that there were five loaves and two fish, but it's John's gospel that says they belong to this little boy. Imagine this little boy, like, it's like his packed first century lunch. We're not talking about like big loaves of bread, giant coho. Like He's got dinner rolls and a couple sardines or something. And Jesus says, well, that's enough. Bring that to me. And so the boy surrenders his five loaves and two fish to Jesus. And then you all know the rest of the story from there. He prays over it. There's this miraculous distribution. It feeds 5,000 people. There's baskets of food left over. The disciples are left feeling red-faced. But what about that boy? What about that boy that was approached by a grown man who said, give me your lunch, kid. And the boy did it. Was that responsible of the boy? If you were that boy's mother or father and you heard that this adult had come up and said, give me your lunch, and your kid like was like, okay, like how would that make you feel? As the as an heir of God's riches, which boy are you? Are you the boy from the giving tree? Are you the boy from the crowd? You see, all that we have comes from God. And all that God has, he's already said is ours. Our time, what we do to work, our rest, our relationships, all of that's not ours, that's God's. Our money, like what we earn, our expenses, how we save money, even our debt, that's not ours, that's God's. So, which boy describes your approach to those things? Are you the giving tree boy? Are you the boy in the crowd? Too many of us treat God and our faith in the church like it's some cosmic giving tree. We participate in it when it brings us pleasure when there's something that we need out of it, when it's convenient to us, when it's fun, when it makes us feel good. We get stuff from this dispensary of spiritual goods and services and we feel fulfilled for a while. Then our needs change, our outlook change, we become a little bit more serious. We have real problems in life now. And is the church helping me meet my real problems? We end up tired and sad, confused and disillusioned because there's nothing left that we can get out of our experience. But I think we're called to treat God and our faith in the church like this other boy. Where we have something to give, even if it's meager, some dinner rolls and some sardines, But God's going to take that and is going to do more with it than we could have ever imagined. I have like a page and a half of like real talk. That's what I put in my notes, real talk. There are people here that are here for the first time. So... Like, this probably doesn't apply to you. I don't know, like, Jesus does really mysterious things, so maybe it totally applies to you. But I didn't have you in mind when it was put on my heart, like, the real talk. So if this is your first time here, welcome. Like, won't be like this next week, probably. But for those of us who are, like, been part of this community for a while, I'm going to say some things that might be a little uncomfortable. They're not meant to be uncomfortable, but just really kind of honest observations. And hopefully you know me well enough that you can come badger me over dinner or something about it, like dinner downstairs, do it right away. I've been a part of this community for a little over eight years, and one of the things that we are bad about doing, we're bad about talking about two things. One is financial giving, and the other is service. And it's because we recognize that like those are like these minefields within like Christianity that you have to carefully walk around because you don't know what people's experiences have been when it comes to church and money or church and volunteering. And so in order to not like make anybody feel uncomfortable, like we, for the eight years I've been here, really just not talked about it. We've waited for people to kind of come to us, like you you know like that the part of our liturgy like the offertory, if we do it on a Sunday, is like, uh, if you brought something to give, there's a box in the back. If you just put it in there on your way out, that would be great. Or you can give online. We're not good about talking about money because we don't want to offend anybody, but I think we have to. I think it's past time for us to talk about money in our church. That doesn't have to be a scary conversation. And it doesn't have to like be full of like shame or guilt or coercion. But we ask kind of sheepishly for people to contribute financially to this community. We end up leaving it as this super private matter, like just whatever the Lord places on your heart. We do the same thing with uh, volunteering, with service as well. Like we say, hey, like, we really could use some people to help out with like the audiovisual stuff that we do. So like, if that's something that's interested in you and you have some time, uh, it would really be great if maybe you could probably just let somebody know about that and um, we'll, we'll figure out a way to get you plugged in. And like, I'm being a little bit of a caricature. We're not that hemming and hawing about it, but we, just like a financial ask, we really haven't figured out a good way to do a firm like, we need help. We're afraid to confront the consumption that we're all used to with a call for contribution. And I think this has to end because we're co-heirs together. We're responsible for managing the estate of God together. That which has been entrusted to each of us, we manage together. So we can't beg or suggest that you give financially or that you give of your time here. We're not going to shame or coerce you into doing that, but we can't ignore or delay those conversations any longer either because we have some immediate needs. When I started in on writing this sermon earlier this week, this was not a giving sermon. But I started thinking about like the story of our congregation over the last eight years and over the last year especially. And like financially, like you guys should know that are part of this congregation, like since we have entered into the transition that we've been in for the last year or so with AJ resigning his post and leaving, like people have left our church. Like you've seen that, right? Like there are people that you look around, you're like, well, they're not here anymore. And a lot of those people gave financially to the church. And so ending 2019, we have been running pretty consistently about a $4,000 to $4,500 a month deficit in our budget. And that was after making some pretty drastic cuts along the way through 2019, and then our financial council in November, just a month and a half ago, uh, setting a pretty conservative budget for 2020 to make sure that that deficit doesn't grow. So our leadership, I think, is doing everything that we can to continue to kind of provide the kind of community that we want but realizing, like, the resources have kind of dried up. Now, $4,000 a month for a congregation of our size actually isn't that hard to cover. Like, we're not talking about a huge, like, everyone in the church needs to up their contribution by $500 a month. If we had roughly the number of people that come to church on a given Sunday either started giving or increased their contribution by about 40 bucks, like, we'd be break-even pretty quickly. We need people to contribute financially and to see that as as an act of stewardship, of taking what God has entrusted to you and using that well. So we've got to move beyond sort of the the box-in-the-back mentality. If you're part of this community, you... you should be financially contributing to it. I preached a sermon like uh, 14 months ago or, or whatever, and I talked about how like, I was embarrassed that my wife and I had been part of the community for seven years at the time, and we had never really given anything. Well, that changed after that sermon because I said it in front of all of you, and so like, I had to do something, right? You should be part of that financial contribution. That doesn't have to be huge. I mean, the boys, the small boy... His contribution wasn't huge. When it comes to service, all of the stuff that we do together is because people come together and do it. You should know, we have two people that are full-time salaried people uh, as part of Theophilus staff. We have three people that have huge volunteer responsibility roles who get paid a stipend. So two full-time people and three part-time people. And everything else is run off of volunteers. And I think that, like, you hear sometimes, right, through our email newsletter or through announcements, like, we probably could use more help in this area or that area. There's three areas, I'll tell you right now, that we desperately need help in. One is audiovisual stuff. Second is uh, the food prep stuff, because we like to eat together every week. And the third is children's ministry. You do not need a degree in any of those fields to be put to work as a volunteer. And here's the real radical thing you don't even need to have a desire to do the thing in that field <laughs> so it may not be your calling to like press the arrow key on the computer to make the slide go to the next one we'll still train you how to do it so like if if you are not serving in some capacity here like don't let your particular unique set of giftings and the particular pressing needs that we have right now, don't let like the failure of that Venn diagram to perfectly align exclude you from saying, hey, I can help out. Like we provide wonderful people who will teach you how to do the stuff that needs to be done. The time commitment is actually super low. Usually like the most frequently that you're asked to volunteer is one Sunday a month a lot of this stuff is actually on an every other month rotation where it's like six times a year that you're asked to help out and do something. But it would be huge if you could step up to the plate in that way as well. You can see, uh, if you're subscribed to our weekly newsletter, like there's contact info in the one that came out just a couple days ago about those three areas. Or you can see me or Cameron or any other face that you recognize or anybody who is volunteering in any of those areas and they'll tell you like, here is how you get plugged in to that area. This is part of us growing as a congregation. Like we take on these burdens together because we are co-heirs to the kingdom of God. We have been adopted as sons, we're heirs to God's kingdom, heirs to all of creation. And all of this is free to us, but it it is not cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he explores the difference in one of the first chapters between cheap grace and costly grace. He says that cheap grace is the kind of grace that requires no change on our part, We live the same life we used to live, but now we have fire insurance from hell. That's cheap grace. Cheap grace is the kind of grace that we bestow upon ourselves. It's forgiveness without having to repent. It's baptism without having to be held accountable in a church. It's communion without confession. It's grace without discipleship or the cross or the living incarnate Jesus. But costly grace is different. Costly grace is that treasure that was hidden in the field that the guy went and sold all of his possessions so he could buy the field because he knew it had a treasure in it. It's the call of Jesus to leave your nets and follow after him. Costly grace is the gospel that has to be sought. It's the gift that has to be asked for. It's the door that has to be knocked upon. It is costly because it calls us to follow Jesus. It requires our whole lives. It's costly because it condemns our sin, but it's grace because it restores us to right relationship with God. Bonhoeffer writes, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Cheap grace is the way the boy treats the tree. Costly grace is the way the other boy offered up his lunch. We're a community that invites you to experience costly grace. Because that's the only true grace that we think there really is. And each week we come to the communion table to partake in a remembrance of that costly grace. And we take the bread, the bread that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke and he said, this is my body do this in remembrance of me. And we tear a piece off of that and we dip it into the cup. And when we dip it into the cup, the cup that Jesus blessed and gave thanks for and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember the costliness of that grace. And we're invited as we take the bread and we dip it into the cup. We're invited to remember what this must cost us as well. Because what cost, Jesus, what, God, what cost God the life of his son cannot be cheap for us. So as you come to the table tonight, I ask that you think about the grace that you've received and your response to it. Has it been cheap? Has it been costly? What are you being invited to do in response? As those who are serving communion come forward, I'll offer a prayer for us. And then in your own time, you come forward down to one of these two stations here or a station in the back. Tear off a piece of that bread which represents the body of Christ. Dip it into that cup which represents the blood of Christ. And think about the costliness of the grace that you hold in your hands. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the offer to adopt us as the children that will inherit your estate. As we think about that adoption and how costly that was to you, we pray that you would help us to find ways of reciprocating that costly grace as we surrender over our riches back to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
2: Would you stand with me? Father God, you are a God of grace, mercy, kindness, compassion. so grateful to be counted among your family and father we thank you for sending your son to us to show us the way and to in fact lay his life down for us and jesus thank you for sending the holy spirit to dwell with us forever and lord we just thank you for the grace you have given and poured out upon our lives and may this grace rest upon us now and give us peace in Jesus name and we all said amen now shake someone's hand give them a hug give them a holy kiss whatever is appropriate okay God bless you
0: You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at TheophilusChurch.com.